Again, like I said, I'm Mike Rutledge, uh, really excited about today. And, you know, I, I always laugh watching these news bloopers, um, you know, the, the, the good news stuff. Um, and, and I have to tell you, part of what I like about it is, we, well, first of all, my family and I moved here about 14 years, a little more than 14 years ago. And um, when we moved here, it was kind of an eye-opening moment. We, we moved here, first of all, from... Uh, the Detroit area, and people ask me, you live in Detroit? And I always tell them, no, I, 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 no one lives in Detroit. People die in Detroit. We didn't live there. We lived in the suburbs of Detroit, which were safer. Um, but the reason I tell you that um, and why I love these news bloopers is I remember distinctly 15 years ago uh, or 14 years ago sitting down in my house here in Utah and turning on the evening news and just watching, and I, I actually remember laughing out loud and calling my wife in, and here's why. So first, they did this, um, there was like a an, uh, story on a group of women who were making Afghan bedspreads that they were distributing. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then, uh, and then they talked about a dog that was lost and recovered. And uh, I mean, those are nice stories. And then, um, and then they went, they said, and now for the weather. And they cut to the weather, and this is what it looked like. And they went, this is not an actual picture of that. I haven't kept this for 14 years. But the news guy, the weather map, everything was up down. And they did the whole newscast, the whole weather report upside down like this. And I'm laughing. And I call Susie, Susie, you got to come look at this. And we're both just laughing and cracking up. And so, but the reason that's kind of funny to me, even the charm of the Afghans and the lost dog, is I moved from Detroit. And just for some clarity on perspective, in 2004... In Detroit, there were 300, just Detroit proper, there were 385 murders versus Salt Lake, which had 15, right? And so you think about 385, so guess how often we're hearing about a murder? Just about every day in the news, right? And there were, uh, let me see, 719 rapes versus 92 rapes, less than a seventh. And then uh, almost 5,500 robberies versus 450 robberies. So, like, it's just the paradigm was different. And I don't tell you that, like, as a brag point. Like, look at me, I'm from Detroit, because I'm not. But anyway, I don't tell you that for that. I actually think it's kind of something to be proud of here that, that we have such a good crime rate. And just so you know, my paradigm of what I expected out of news was just different, because it was hardly ever good news. My, my, my paradigm was, it's going to be bad news, and I kind of don't really usually watch it. I don't even really know why I was watching it here, you know, 14 years ago. Um, but what I, what I want to do is, is I want to just rewind and say, again, we're talking about good news. And today, when I say we're talking about good news, I'm not even talking about the funny news blooper stuff or whatever. I'm talking about, we're talking about something that is actually really good news for you, something that's life-changing and life-giving news. That's what we're talking about today. And so I'm pretty excited. And if you, we're in the final week of this series that we we're calling Good News. And if you weren't here over the last two weeks, I'd encourage you to go online and check out, uh, you know, you can listen at K2, uh, the church or whatever. Uh, just go on the internet and you can find um, a podcast or whatever. And two weeks ago, we talked about how God came and brought his kingdom here to earth because he wanted to be in relationship with us. That's what Dave talked about a couple weeks ago. And then last week, uh, Derek talked about, so if, if God came to earth to be in relationship with us, how come that kingdom, you know, he brought his kingdom here. Why is that kingdom not thriving? Why, why is the kingdom not thriving? 
And then he, said, and then he went on to say, well, the third thing is that even though it's not thriving, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, created an opportunity for us to be back in that right relationship, even though we're sinful and holy and broken and God is unholy and broken and God is so holy. And this week, so what we're going to be looking at is, okay, so then if that's, if that's you know, how do we get in God's kingdom, what, what, what do I need to do? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I'll just tell you this, I'm going to read some of your minds for just a second and just answer the question that some of you are asking. Why do I want to be in God's kingdom? Maybe I don't want to be in God's kingdom. And I think it's a great question. And that's why I would say go back last couple weeks, look at Dave's message and look at Derek's message. Because here's why you want to be in God's kingdom. When you understand what God's kingdom is like, understanding that God is a God of love, God brings hope, he's a God of grace, he's a God of forgiveness. And let me just ask you this. How many of you are going, you know what, I don't want to be in that kingdom. I've got too much forgiveness in my life. All of my relationships are reconciled, and as soon as anything goes wrong, it just fixes itself. Anyone there today? Okay, I didn't think so. How about you? Like, I have too much love. I don't need any more love in my life. Right. Anyone here going, I got too much grace for everyone. I can't help but just be gracious to people, or people can't help but be... Right. So why do you want to be in God's kingdom? Because God's kingdom is the kingdom that your heart desires. It's the kingdom that humanity desires. That's the first thing I also will say. Why do you want to be in God's kingdom? Because man's kingdom outside of God looks like the news report from 2004 where 385 people die of homicides. And why do they die? They die because, why do homicides happen? Because someone is either preventing me from getting something I want or has something I want or is in the way of me, right? It it fights against the kingdom I'm trying to establish, And that becomes a problem. And herein lies the dilemma. That we have this unrelenting desire to be in our own kingdom, creating our own rules, where we set up our own, uh, you know, everything for my own good. And and we think that if we live in our own kingdom, creating our own rules, that's going to be better for us. While humanity and the course of history has proven Over and over again, man in control fails. That's why we have brokenness in this world. That's why we want to be in God's kingdom. And here's the thing. If you are in God's kingdom, the reason it works is because God, first of all, is completely all-knowing. And secondly, he's all-loving. Right? When man is in control, you're Hitler's and you're Warren Jeff's. What happens? They twist the power for their own good, and we all do. So when we can put our trust in God, who's all loving and all good, that's the only way the kingdom works. Right? Does that make sense? All right. So but what I want to do is just talk. Real, it's really interesting, even in the, in the Gospels um, and, and, and through other, throughout Scripture, but when they talk about the kingdom of, of God... There's some really interesting language around it. Um, and even uh, if you, John the Baptist was sent. He came before Jesus, and he's, the, they say, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. Okay? And so here's what he says in Matthew 2. He says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay? So John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for Jesus, said, repent. Well, what did Jesus say when he got here? Well, he said, the time has come. 
The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then in Matthew 4, he also says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. And then he sent, Jesus sends out the disciples. And when the disciples go out, it says they went out and preached that people should repent. And even Peter, if you remember, there was this one, uh, one kind of huge day in, in, in the world of evangelism where it's called the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people in one day said, yeah, I want to be in God's kingdom instead of my own. I want to trade. I want to be part of what Jesus offers. And in that day, Peter was preaching and he said, Peter replied, repent and be baptized everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. Now what's interesting is we, that word repent is kind of weird, right? It feels kind of churchy maybe and uh, a little bit judgmental. You know, repent, it doesn't feel so good. And, but the reason, uh, just so you know this, first of all, if, if, if it brings a sense of condemnation, then you're actually not hearing from God. The most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he sent his son so that we could be saved. The next verse says, and he came not to condemn us, but to save us. So if there's a sense of condemnation around what's going on in your life, you need to understand, first of all, you're not hearing that from God. That's coming from elsewhere, because God came to save us, okay? So, but the problem in, in reality with, the word, with repentance is that we don't actually fully understand it, okay? And, and the word in the Greek, metanoia, which actually means afterthought, or a change of heart, change of mind, change of purpose. And anytime that word is used in the New Testament, it actually, uh, it, it's, it actually always refers to a change of purpose. So oftentimes when we think about repentance, we think about things like feeling bad about what I've done. And, it, uh, you know, I said this last service, it's not bad to feel bad when you do something bad. It's just not complete. It doesn't do enough for you to feel bad, Right? That's where condemnation comes in. I just feel bad about myself all the time, and I feel condemned. That, that, that leads to nothing valuable. So, but what it is is actually an opportunity for us to change. Repentance is an internal change of mind and heart rather than just feeling sorry. We say this hypothetically because my kids don't ever do anything wrong, but if they did in a hypothetical world, like let's say in 15 minute stretch they do the same thing like 20 times for instance and then you you know every time I'm like dude what are you doing sorry 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 and eventually I say no I don't really think you're sorry I actually don't think you are because you keep doing the same thing and listen by the way you don't even have to say you're sorry if you just stop doing that thing I'll know you're sorry See, because then they start to think differently about their actions, and when they think differently, and they have this internal change, it produces a different behavior, right? Easy enough? The, in, in 2 Corinthians, it says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And let's just talk about the last half. Worldly sorrow brings death. What does that mean? It means when we feel sad about stuff that we've done, but it doesn't have any change in us, no, no internal change happens, it's just the kind of stuff that's killing you, right? It's sucking the joy out of your life. It's, it's, it's breaking your spirit. That's what, that's what human sorrow does. But godly sorrow, as it says, leads to 
repentance, salvation and repentance, right? And leaves no regret. So when you change the way you're feeling and thinking inside, different actions occur. It gets rid of your regret and leads to salvation. That's worth celebrating. Luke 3 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? That means if you're repentant, the stuff you were doing should be exchanged for something else. This is the process of stepping into God's kingdom and out of our own. I, I love this story. I'm, by the way, Jesus and Peter and the disciples, John the Baptist, here, here's what they said when they said, repent. They said, Turn away from those things that are killing you. Turn away from the things that are robbing your life and turn to the kingdom of God that's giving life to you. Another way of looking at that Corinthians passage. Turn into the things that are actually bringing life to your soul. Now, for me, I, I'll tell you this. Um, I, I, I know one of the most significant times, and if you know me, you've heard me share this story before. One of the most significant times where I know that was a deep time of repentance was when I was, when I was in ninth grade. And uh, it was in Sunday school class. It was a very, very significant uh, day in my life uh, because I believe it was a day of repentance for me. Now, what, I wasn't like, you know, running around. I hadn't just done something bad that I felt guilty over. I'm not even, it wasn't even that. Here, here's what happened for me that, that was so significant. Chuck Hohenbaum, he was um, our ninth grade boys Sunday school teacher. And um, he, it was, uh, must have been right around Easter because he was talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm sitting in the class, and uh, what, what, Chuck was a really interesting guy. He was really, really friendly, and he's kind of like this nerdy bookworm, and, and, um, uh, but just a really great guy and just really loved him and respected him. And uh, so he's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And as he's talking about this, he, in, in front of the ninth grade boys class, you know, there's 20 of us sitting there, he just starts crying. Just breaks down and starts crying. And here's what happened in my head in that moment. I'm like, wait a second. I don't think he believes the same thing I believe. Because <laughs> I can talk about the crucifixion of Christ and it doesn't really make any difference in my life. And in that moment, I realized, yeah, no, he does believe something different. He actually believes that Jesus Christ died for him. And I had a conviction in my heart and a repentance in my heart, and I started to think differently. And over time, my behavior started to change. I traded my own kingdom for God's kingdom. I want to tell you a great story. Lord Kenneth Clark internationally known for his television series, Civilization. I don't know if you've heard of it, but apparently I live under a rock. Uh, anyway, Lord Kenneth Clark lived and died without faith in Jesus Christ. He admitted in his autobiography that while visiting a beautiful church, he had what he believed to be an overwhelming religious experience. My whole being, Clark wrote, was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had known before. But the gloom of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he would have to change. His family might think he had lost his mind. And maybe that intense joy would prove to be an illusion. So he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. 
See, and this is how often we live. We have an opportunity to make that exchange, but we realize it's going to mean changes in behaviors and attitudes, and we choose not to. See, repentance isn't just something, by the way, that occurs like pre-salvation. I want, if, if you may have been a believer for 20 years, you may have been a believer for 20 minutes. Repentance is something that becomes a regular behavior of identifying the things in your life that are killing you and drawing you away from God back into your own kingdom and exchanging those for God's kingdom, right? And you've got to be willing to give up some stuff that you might want to hold on to. That's what's hard. And what I want to do is I want to show you the, uh, a story here. It's a great story of a girl who went through a pretty significant change in her life. Her name's Haley. Take a look at this. I had to grow up really fast. I had a single mom, and I had an older sister, and I kind of looked up to both of them, and I was raised agnostic and atheist, kind of, and we didn't really know anything. And it made me really curious about what was after this life, what we had. But, you know, coming from a family where I didn't really know anything, I just kind of rushed it aside until I was about 12, and I decided to kind of go more in-depth with religion and Growing up in Utah, you know, the only thing I knew was Mormonism. And so I kept looking into that. And about a year later, when I was 13, I was baptized into the church. One of my really close friends was LDS, and she was a really big role model in my life. And finally, I was like, okay, I think this is, I want to be exactly like you. Let's, yeah, let's do it. When I first got baptized, you know, you needed to be baptized to ex have the full experience, I think. And I remember coming up um, out of the water and just and not feeling any different. And it was kind of, it felt like kind of a letdown. I, you know, took that and kind of swallowed my pride and said, you know, this is not, this is okay. This is the true church of Jesus Christ. And I kept going and, and pursuing it and I started to realize I cared more about what other people thought, how people saw me, how I talked and how I dressed. I cared more about the people in the church than God. And at the end of the day, I realized I didn't know who Jesus Christ was. I was told a million times who he was, but I didn't, I didn't know for myself. I started to realize I hated myself on the inside. I wasn't perfect and I needed to be. I was saved by my works, I wasn't saved by grace. And from the outside, people who didn't really know me thought I had it all together, I was great, and on the inside, I was just, I was, I was dying. And I could, I could feel that. And I went through life talking to my bishop, talking to my young women's leaders and saying, I don't feel good about myself. And they'd be like, oh, you're a teenager, that's normal. You'll grow past it, just keep praying and, and reading the scriptures. And at the end of the day, that wasn't helping. The only thing that was helping was the Bible. Um, but I could see on the outside that I was getting more and more depressed and I didn't care anymore. I honestly didn't. Something that happened that I realized um, this, uh, this feeling wasn't normal and that this isn't okay for me to feel like I need to be perfect and I need to live up to who Jesus Christ was and I had this level that I had to play by um, wasn't okay as I was watching a sermon on YouTube and they talked about how imperfect you are and that's okay because that's the whole reason Jesus died on the cross for us. And I was like, 
Jesus did die on the cross, but we don't talk about that, you know? And I wanted to know more about that. And I kept looking at sermons and I kept, I kept really pursuing God in this way. I started to realize I was imperfect and that's okay. And you need to let go of those feelings. Being good is good and that's great, but you're saved by grace at the end of the day. And that's what's really crucial to understand. I think there was a gradual breaking point of just realizing I couldn't be myself. I needed to have Jesus in a way that was sincere and loving and kind. And two months ago, I really decided to leave and decided this was not okay. You know, I was terrified of leaving the church. And when I went to my first Christian service, I was like, it's okay. Like, I am going to be okay with leaving because I can see what, like, the compassion of Jesus is. In two months, a lot has happened. Um, publicly, I told everyone I was leaving, and there was a lot of backlash at first and a lot of confusion on why it came up so abruptly. I got shunned by a lot of people, and, you know, I had a lot of people also ask, how do you have enough courage? How, how do you have enough strength to leave? And I just had to say, you know, through Jesus, this isn't for me, this is for Him. I felt probably the loneliest I have socially. However, spiritually, I've never felt so strong and I've never felt Jesus' love so much. All I want to do is to help people understand who Jesus is. And I want to make an impact in people's lives in that way that they can truly understand that Jesus is a loving Savior. He's there for anyone at any time, no matter who you are. Um, I want people to understand and to feel okay with themselves. And I hope that I can do that in just at least one person's life. such a great story of someone who was trying to own their own kingdom and live a certain way that they felt could earn their way into heaven and they were willing to make that change you know willing to change the beliefs and the attitudes and become who God created them to be and what's really interesting she says part of the way through you know I, I was trying to live and keep all these rules and I just couldn't do it and it wasn't giving me life uh, and here and, and she realized at that moment that the only way was through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk for the time we have remaining about what that means. Where, where do works and faith come together? What, what, is that, what is that combination of faith and works? And uh, I, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a very interesting uh, chapter in the Bible. It's often referred to as the hall of faith, where the whole chapter is basically just a list of all of the people in the Old Testament and the people you read about in the Bible times that lived a life, an exemplary life of faith, and through their faith were uh, accepted into, you know, the eternal kingdom of God. Even like Abraham, one of the things that says, you know, he was appointed the father of Israel. If anyone didn't have, need faith, if they could just work it in be him, but he couldn't. He had to do it through faith. And, so, and it lists all these people. It's really interesting. And here's what it says, though, in, in, in 11... Uh, chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, And without faith, it is very hard to please God. Nope. It is impossible to please God without faith. 
Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It says that you cannot please God. No behavior will ever please God. The only thing you can do is by faith accept what he has for you. And it says you got to believe what? That he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Put your faith in him and seek him and he'll reward that. And another uh, verse or a couple verses that I think everyone should memorize, it's Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9, and it says this, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It couldn't be more clear. You cannot work your way or do enough good to please God. The only way you're going to please God is by putting your faith in him and trading your kingdom with your rule and your desires for God's. And what does it say in that verse? How are we saved? We're saved by what? Grace, God's grace. Through what? Faith. And what's interesting, it goes on, verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved by grace through faith to do good works, which he prepared. So even the works that you do aren't your own strength. There's something that he prepared for you, and it's a responsive action. And let's look at what he also says. He doesn't just tell you how to be saved. He tells you how not to be saved in this passage. It says, how aren't we saved? Not by ourselves, and not by good works, but we were created for good works prepared by God. So you're saved by grace through faith to do good works, not by yourself, right? Repentance leads to faith, and faith leads to good works. It's really interesting in this passage, I want to look at James writes this passage in chapter 2, where he wants to dispel the idea of, of a faith that does not have any evidence of works. Now, you cannot earn your faith by works, but once you have placed your faith in him, it should evidence, and that's what James wants to look at. I'm going to read this whole passage, and then I kind of want to go back and kind of tear it apart, and here it is. Uh, starting with verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has food, uh, who has no clothing or food, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in horror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Okay. I want to just go back and attack that, because you can see there's this tension between faith and works, and we've clearly just said that the Bible is very, very, very uh, directive on the idea that you can't work yourself into heaven. But James is saying, but you should have good deeds. So let's look at this. And what's interesting, what he's saying here is that workless faith is worthless faith. 
That's the summary of this passage. Workless faith is worthless faith. And he, he takes five different approaches to kind of, you know, kind of answer why he believes that. Look at the first. It's the rhetorical challenge, you know. He, he, he sort of asks a question that doesn't need to be answered because it's obvious. Look at this. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? What's the obvious answer? It's no good. No good at all. The rhetorical approach. And then he goes, okay, let's go hypothetical. So he, let, let's make up a situation and see how it looks, okay? Next one, he says, suppose you see a brother or sister who needs food and clothes and stuff like that, uh, and, and, and you, don't give them, you don't give them what they need. What good is that? Answer, it's no good. It doesn't do anything for anyone. And then he goes with the I have a friend approach. I love this one. You know, you know when, you, when you don't want to admit what you're really thinking, but you, you want to blame it on your friend, the I have a friend approach, he says, now, someone could argue that you have faith and I have deeds. And that, you know, I mean, couldn't it just be that? And then he goes, his response is, is the let's prove it challenge. Okay. So for your friend, maybe you should talk to your friend and ask him, how does he show you his faith if he doesn't have any works? I can actually show you my faith by what I'm doing. That's the prove it challenge. Then this, this one's kind of harsh, but then he goes on to the comparison challenge. His comparison challenges are like, well, you may say you have faith that there's only one God, good for you, but even the demons believe that. So you want to you be like a demon, is that what you're saying, who believes in God, but it doesn't make any difference in their life? Okay. And then he goes, his final sixth point is the seriously dude challenge, right? He just says, come on, seriously, dude, how, can't you see this is useless, use, useless? And, and here's the point. He's not pro-faith, anti-works, or pro-works, anti-faith. What he's saying in this passage is that both are important. Your faith should produce works that are beneficial to those around you. Because in God's kingdom versus man's kingdom, which is all about me, once I enter God's kingdom, I begin to be about others. And if my faith is doing nothing for anyone around me, guess what? It's useless. And by the way, this isn't put in there so you can evaluate the faith of others. I would prefer that, quite frankly. This is for you to introspect and understand in your own heart, is your faith producing something that benefits others? If not, you need to ask yourself why and examine what's going on, right? Because God's kingdom is all about others. Now, the final thing I just want to share with you this morning is that, that and I've already said it, but I'm, I'm, I just want to club it over the head so that I'm so clear. I don't want any confusion on this. I do good works not so that. Right? My good works are not in order to earn something. Look at this passage in Galatians. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. And he says this. Uh, by the way, uh, we Jews by nature, or we are Jews by nature and sinners. First of all, what you need to understand is Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, which is a predominantly Jewish church, right? They, they, they had come to faith, but they were Jews. Now, Jews in this time were God's chosen people, right? And the Gentiles were looked at the dirty, unclean sinners. So, so just as background. So he says this. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We're not like them. We're Jews, right? We're the chosen ones. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ 
Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law will no flesh be justified. Could it be any more clear? There is nothing you can do to earn it. I love this story. You may have heard of Claire, Bar Claire Barton. She uh, founded the, the Red Cross. And during the Spanish-American War, uh, she's overseeing the Red Cross work in Cuba. And then uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders rolled in. And um, the story goes like this. He wanted to buy food for his sick and wounded Rough Riders, but she refused to sell him any. Roosevelt was perplexed. His men needed the help, and he was prepared to pay out of his own funds. When he asked someone why he could not buy the supplies, he was told, Colonel, just ask for it. A smile broke over Roosevelt's face, and he understood the provisions were not for sale. All he had to do was simply ask, and they would be given freely. This is the story of grace in our lives. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. It's free. And the way you do it is just by asking. We don't do good works so that. We do good works because of Faith produces works. Your works are the response to appreciating what God has done for you and the overflowing of the work of the Spirit in your life. I love this. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Why do we do good works? Because we're called to be imitators of Christ, and Christ's ultimate, he didn't come down to set up his own earthly kingdom, did he? He set up a kingdom for us to be in to the point of giving his own life to death, and we're called to be imitators. So we do good works because we're trying to imitate him, and it's the overflowing of what has happened as a result of receiving that grace in our life and understanding our own righteousness. James, who did, welcomed everyone, he showed me this little cartoon, and it's like, the punchline was, hey, you've done nothing to contribute to your own uh, faith, salvation except for the sin that God was, great, was able to <laughs> forgive you for. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's about right, isn't it? And when you understand your own sinfulness, it gets pretty easy to say, you know what? As a response, I'm going to act differently for the benefit of those around me. And, here, and as we, by the way, as we pursue God and get closer to him, and how do you pursue God? Reading the Bible, time at church, being around people who love Jesus, being in small groups, you know, all of the things that are going to draw you closer to him. That's how you pursue him. And as you do pursue him and get closer to him, you become more like him and more loving, and you start to replicate the kingdom of God here on earth. I'm going to invite the band up as we close this morning. And before we do, I just want to tell one more story. It's a really funny story. A businessman who is known for his ruthlessness once announced to the writer Mark Twain. He said, before I die, I want to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments out loud at the top. I have a better idea, replied Mark Twain. You could just stay in Boston and keep them. See, this is a great example of what we try and do in our own power to produce something that's out of our power. And Mark Twain kind of had it dialed in. You don't need to do all that stuff. Just do what's in front of you. 
God is offering every single person a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't pay enough for it. But it's free. And so here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to do a song here, and then we're going to actually take communion in a minute. We're going to take it together. So as we do this song, our greeters, again, they're going to come, and they're going to be passing out. You guys can start. They're going to pass out the juice and the bread. And I want you to hold on to that. Don't take it yet. We're going to take it together after the song is done. But here's what I want you to do. You know, we're told in Corinthians that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. And I'm going to give us, I want to give us some time to do that, actually. We're going to do that through a song. But I want to ask you a few questions here. Can you imagine a kingdom that was devoid of any of the conflict and struggles that you have currently going on in your life. You know, don't answer this, but any of you have a relationship that's not really going so great? Anyone feel like you're struggling to forgive someone or someone is not forgiving you? Anyone got that going on? Anyone feel like they could just use a little more love in their life, be able to love others more easily or actually be loved by others? No, we all do. We all do. See, this is what God's kingdom is in a nutshell. And he came to the point of laying down his life on your behalf so that you could live in this kingdom. And the only way that kingdom perpetuates is by our obedience to following Christ and being more like him. Laying down our lives for the lives of others as opposed to protecting our own investments and getting the things we want, worrying about trusting. And for some of us, you know, maybe you accepted Christ 20 years ago, 20 minutes ago, it doesn't really matter. What I'll say is repentance isn't something that happens before you find Christ. It's a behavior that continues throughout your whole life. And what we need to do is understand the areas where we're not submitting to God and we're not allowing him to change us from the inside out to produce something different. That's what repentance is. Having God come into every single area, and I'll tell you, I hate it. Because as long as he keeps looking, he keeps finding stuff that I need to repent for. He's trying to turn stuff around in my life. So as you're here, just as the song is playing, listen to these lyrics, I want you to think about that. God, what do I need to confess to you? What do I need to repent from? Reveal it to me. And for some of you, you've never even taken that first step. You've never said, you know what? I want to trade my kingdom for the kingdom of God. I want to follow his rule. I want to perpetuate love and goodness and grace and joy and hope and all of the things that he promises. And you do that real simply. And if that's you, you just say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins come into my heart. I trust you and I believe you and I trade my kingdom for yours. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this song together. Just Again, I want to give you time to reflect before we take this communion together. We'll come back up and we'll finish the day with more worship and taking the communion together. <laughs>